Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Zach. And I'm Sam. And today we are thrilled to have Eric Paler with us. Professor Paler is an Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Amherst and the Director of the Joint Blended Learning and Digital Humanities Program for the Five Colleges Consortium. He received his BA from Bemidji State University in 1997, then his PhD in Classical Art and Archaeology from the University of Virginia in 2009. Now, he has more than 20 years of experience on excavations and urban surveys throughout the Mediterranean and is also the author of more than two dozen articles and books in leading venues, including the Oxford University Press, the American Journal of Archaeology, and the Journal of Roman Archaeology. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Professor Paler. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a good time. Um, one of the first things that we, or the first thing that we always ask of our guests is to talk about an inflection point or some point in which they had to pivot or make a change, um, maybe it was a change in career plans or personally. Um, can you share a um, sort of moment with us? Yeah, I could think of, uh, I, I've been lucky to have quite a few inflection points in, I think, in my career. And the first one I can think of is uh, when I decided to go in the direction of being a Roman archaeologist rather than an archaeologist of another area. So when I was an undergraduate, I was fascinated by archaeology but my university didn't have much in the way of archaeological coursework. So I took everything I could in the course catalog that even remotely came close to archaeology. And after I graduated, I kind of had to make a decision between what I thought were two really fascinating cultures, the Inca and the Romans. And it was a, uh, it was a unique and interesting moment where I had to make that choice. And after having made it, uh, I quickly found myself visiting Pompeii for the first time. And that experience of walking on the Roman city for the first time, the experience of being surrounded by the past in three dimensions absolutely captivated me. And I thought at that moment, this is what I want to work on. This is where I want to be. And I spent quite a bit of the next um, 20 years making that happen and continuing to be there. It did seem doing our research that a lot of your work was um, focused on the one both in Pompeii, but also a specific site in Pompeii. Um, is it at all um, limiting or constraining, or do you ever wish that you could study a different area um, from ancient Rome or from the Incans, like you said? Absolutely. So I always want to study more things. Uh, the The simple limitations of of space and time are the are the real the real problems in my life. I would love to study con considerably more. Pompeii has uh, a fascinating array of materials to study. There's art historical materials, architectural. There are uh, artifactual materials. All these things uh, are available for study. In particular, um, I think one of the areas that I'm the most interested in now is moving into large-scale data projects. So beginning to look at the fact that there are 640,000 square meters of space in Pompeii. There are at least uh, about, well, there's at least 86,000 individual faces of walls, each of which, almost all of which were painted. This provides the opportunity to look into the Roman imagination through the artworks that are there, and not only to peer into a single person's imagination, but to look at an entire world painted uh, and available for study. So I do find uh, that there are many other areas I'd like to, to study, but Pompeii keeps kind of bringing me back. Um, I'd say one other thing about the site, which is Having spent a lot of time there, and I, I mean uh, a lot of time, I've spent more than two and a half calendar years in the city, uh, more than some of the places I've lived in, 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 uh, in the modern world, uh, 
no matter what happens, every single day that I'm there, I see something new and something interesting. So as much as I'd like to be pulled in a number of different directions, and in fact, I'm working on another project in ancient Corinth. I'm working and starting a new project on a site called Tharos in Sardinia this coming summer. Both of those are new projects. There's an endless supply of fascination available at Pompeii, and it keeps drawing me. So out of all the locations and excavations you've listed and have been a part of, which has been your favorite and, and why? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the projects that is now wrapping up is a project called uh, uh, the Ismia, East Ismia Archaeological Project. And it's a project in Greece that I'm, I'm surprised that I'm saying this in a certain sense now because it was a project that was always kind of our side project. It was a project that we were invited into because it was a long forgotten site in Greece of the Roman period of materials that were thought to be kind of lesser than the, the grand buildings of the, of the classical period. And so we were brought in to study it. But the challenge of coming to understand that site, the invention and modification of things that we knew in methods became radically, um, it radically changed the way I thought about places like Pompeii. And when I returned to Pompeii, it very much clarified the kinds of thinking and work that I'd done. So I, I might I might surprise myself to say right now that Ismia uh, might be one of the most important and favorite places. Plus, I have just great and strong memories of, of kind of like warm sunshine and uh, the smell of fig, as in this cooing of doves as you worked and sat on site uh, in between in between sessions in the in what would be the blazing sun. It does seem nice to be working in like mostly the Mediterranean. Nice weather, nice food. Yes, the food, Has the perks. weather. It, there are there are um, there are formidable archaeologists working in far more difficult climes, uh, and they are to be saluted. But uh, I won't trade their trade places with them. Can you talk about when you said in undergrad you were very interested in archaeology already, um, and you've mentioned in this interview the idea or the um, sort of activity of learning something new every day, um, or of being. Um, it, part of the past, but you can find those in a lot of other fields. And um, what was it about archaeology that particularly drew you? You know, I think uh, I think it's that I was a romantic. I think I can actually think about my eight, seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen-year-old self uh, as I as I was going towards the end of high school, really enjoying uh, some parts of English literature, particularly the Romantic period. Um, and when I found myself in in college. One of the first classes that I took was a, a class on uh, ancient history, and it wasn't about archaeology, but it was my first contact with cultures of ancient Egypt, of the Sumerians, and in the very first reading for the very first day, the uh, the assigned reading contained the poem uh, Ozymandias by uh, by Shelley, and I was so captivated by that, and so captivated by the notion of not just being able to understand the past, but in a certain sense to kind of stand amongst it, right? And to, and to be within the, within the past. And so those, that was kind of the moment in my life where I, I shifted from thinking I wanted to be an historian, someone who was interested in understanding the past, to, to be someone who would go to those places and try to understand it kind of at, a, at, a, at another level. Um, so your, your talk tonight, one of the main focuses is um, new technologies and new um, techniques that are being used in um, archaeological surveys. Um, I was wondering if you can kind of share with us kind of your experience with new technology and what they've kind of 
unlocked in the field of archaeology? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, many, many years ago, people started calling me a gadget guy. And I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't think of myself that way. Um, because I would be the person who had a, an iPod. And I was the person who went and got a little attachment for the iPod that you could take voice notes on. And then uh, I got a secondhand Palm Pilot and I got the little keyboard for it. And I sat there and I typed my notes instead of writing my notes on this little device. Uh, and I had a pretty good digital camera back in 1998. Um, all the many megapixels that that had available at the time. Um, and so I began to realize that these were devices that I was interested in because they allowed me the opportunity to take a different approach to the research. Part of it was efficiency, but part of it was vibrancy as well. And so today, when I think about technologies, that's the kind of the same thing I'm after as I look at them. One in the realm of efficiency is how do we work smarter and faster so that we can continue to focus on the things that humans still do best, which is the creation of narrative, which is the which is the interpretive elements that, that goes from an object to, to evidence, to data, to story. And I say story because I, I mean that, I don't mean that we make it up. I mean that we need to tell a meaningful historical story about what we discover. Um, and I also think that on the other side, the innovation side of it is that it's also about trying to visualize and create new ways of approaching the past. So how can we see through these new data. And I guess I might even have a third part, which is really where some of these projects are going now, which is how do we best share this information? How do we break it down to the microscopic level and individual observation, make that available to anyone in the world who's interested in what our, what our dig or what our project found that day, to begin to add that up to the pieces that someone might need to understand if they were going to follow us all the way up to that historical narrative, or more importantly, if they encounter us through a historical narrative. I saw the past this way because I worked in the field. It might be more important to follow us back down towards the individual observation so they can know what, it, what that one rock or what that one pottery sherd means to this whole structure, right? It's very hard for people uh, to imagine how one sherd, or really, hundreds or thousands of sherds, how that adds up to something important about history. And so building in the, the digital constructs that allow people to follow us all the way up and down that, that scale is, is pretty important and making sure that's available. It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like one of the um, um, privileges maybe that the new technologies um, allow you is to be a little bit more granular in your research in terms of getting more data or getting uh, having more discoveries in the same geographical or physical space. Um, has the, have the new digital, digital tools helped you change the goals um, of your research or have they, um, or have the goals remain the same but the capacities are now greater? Wow, good question. So it's, it's you know, as, 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 as people say today, yes and, right? So it is, uh, it is both the fact that granularity has led to an intensification, and that means that we dig smaller trenches over more time and get more out of it. Um, but it is also the case, particularly because we now link data sets together and, and find this availability, that we're able to kind of 
amplify and, and, and bring them together and make larger arguments because there's more available. So at the same time that we're not uncovering huge swaths of cities the way that we were in the 19th and early 20th century, what we are able to do today, both in terms of what we do with intensifying work today and in what's called legacy data analysis, where you go back and you look at an old storeroom or an old, uh, an old notebook and you begin to extract that information, piecing that all together uh, to now allows us to, to add more. So it's, as I say, it's that yes and answer for technology. Do you ever have too much data? All the time. Yeah, the, the intermediating structures in analysis are hugely important. And what I mean by that is no human can deal with the 250,000 objects that came out of the last excavation I was a part of. So what you need is classification systems. You need visualization structures. You need to have ways in which those data become meaningful as part of something that reflects human activity so that then you can tell a story that relates to how human beings lived in the past rather than how data flowed from a trench into a table, into a database, and then onto a page, right? So yeah, that's definitely a, a key portion these days. Um, so you, you, you've talked a lot about kind of the storytelling aspect of archaeology, and I was just curious if you could kind of walk us through the process of first um, acquiring all this data and then tra transitioning from that to a story. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that um, I'm actually just been writing about because one of the things that's happened um, is my PhD advisor is now retiring. And, and in, in uh, preparation for that and in honor of, of him, we have a volume that's, that, that's, that's going to come out in his honor. And hopefully he doesn't hear this yet. <laughs> um, uh, next week he'll know. Um, but in doing so, one of the things that I wanted to do was trace his impact on a particular method that I've become invested in. And in that research, it's quite clear that we don't teach each other very clearly, at least at the discipline level, how you take an individual observation and how you add it to another and to another and to another and then begin to tell that story. Um, I, I guess I'll repeat myself in a sense to say that my, my belief now is that we spend more time on the middle step, on that intermediating structure so that that becomes an object that's understandable and that is something that allows people to kind of trace back to the data and then up to the story. Now, the intermediating structure to the story, that's almost an unlinkable uh, connection, meaning it is a thing that a human being, by virtue of experience, training, and in some cases intuition, makes the leap between the, uh, between the data and the story. Um, I was very much moved as an undergraduate to read a book um, uh, that in the introduction talked about what this, this historian called the historical imagination, which is that connective tissue between the facts and what happened. And that in every case, no matter what, it is human imagination that makes that leap. Now we believe, and, and I believe, that the informed, the, the people who dedicate their lives to understanding the past and putting their imagination as close to the reality that other people lived allows for those, those imagined relationships to be as, and I'll put, I'm doing air quotes here, as true as they can be. They're as realistic, they're as meaningful, they're as positive as they can be. 
um, while still remembering that they are one human's imagined version of a past uh, based on the best available information that we have. But that very same faith in data puts people on the moon. So I think we can we can have some faith that uh, the things that transpired in the past have a similar relationship to, to uh, reality. It seemed also that you were one of the founders of a lot of these digital techniques, and you said in your personal life you were certainly an early adopter of a lot of technology. Um, have you had experience as sort of the a pioneer in the field of digi- like using digital techniques for archaeology? Um, and if so, what was that experience like? Um, I shy. I guess I want to shy away from the notion that I'm an inventor. I, I I feel very much like the Columbus of certain things, meaning that you know I haven't discovered things, but I've I have been. I have tried to be a proponent for them, and, and maybe this is where I should back off from the, the Columbus uh, analogy, right? Um, but I feel that there are many people whose shoulders I've stood on, uh, who've invented things, whose ideas uh, have percolated into my mind. And if I can, if I can take credit for anything, it is taking other people's ideas and putting them into novel relationships to eat to themselves. Um, what is it like to do those things? Uh, it's exhilarating. It's really interesting to have a moment where you realize that one thing and another thing together creates a unique synergy. Um, I remember very distinctly um, thinking about a project um, that uh, eventually became uh, an online platform called the Pompeii Bibliography and Mapping Project. And that moment was when I realized that these two things that are just that the Pompeianists of the world need. They need a catalog of the more than 23,000 references to Pompeii and they need good mapping data. When I realized that I could say, hey, you know what, these sources, they talk about these spaces, and if I can add the sources to the spaces, I can use digital technologies to cut through and sort both of them. So I could use a map to sort through a bibliography. And that spatial reference is something you can't do in in a library catalog right now, but it would be a really meaningful way for scholars and students and the lay public of, uh, of interest to find infer- interesting relationships and interesting information about Pompeii and to get to the information they want uh, and to sort uh, away from the things that are that stand between them and that answer. Um, so you talk about Pompeii, and I was just curious about how kind of the uniquely preserved nature of Pompeii has, has made it, um, has kind of distinguished it from other um, projects you've been a part of. Yeah, uh, it, it is... Um, it is a concept I call detail over distance. Many, many places in the world, you can dig a trench. It's going to be two meters by two meters square. You go down and you happen upon a unique moment of preservation where you have this kind of still life of the past available for you to study. And that happens around the world. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, a lucky and fortunate thing. But what Pompeii has is that two square meters or that four square meters um, at, at scale, right? There is 640,000 square meters of that. And what that means is that individual observations come at scale and they can be scaled up. Uh, I'll use the example of my research on traffic. Um, one of the things that Pompeii does is it allows for someone like me to come along and, and you talked about, we talked about pioneering. This is one of those things I just can't believe someone hasn't. I'm just so surprised that no one published it before. For 250 years, people have come to Pompeii and walked around the cities, and they've seen, no doubt, large scrapes on the sidewalks, and they must, and these these stepping stones, 
they must have seen and must have understood, particularly people who lived in the age of horse-drawn carriages, the relationship between the wheels and the, and the, the architectures of the street. But no one put that, that clear observation together with the hundreds of observations that surround the city. So this is what makes Pompeii unique, that it doesn't just preserve the evidence of which way a cart was going at one corner in one part of the city. It preserves that at almost every single street corner in the city. And with patience and time, one can add those things up and come to the realization that there was not just movement throughout the city, but that movement was ordered, that there were rules, and that the system itself changed over time. And that is the kind of the miracle and, and joy of Pompeii, is that it preserves that level of detail for you to find throughout its, uh, throughout its expanse. The um, being able to take disparate, seemingly disparate things and then connect them either through the observation you just talked about or in um, uh, developing new or um, using new techniques in archaeology um, is applicable widely. Is there anything in your training or the way in which you think or the sort of organization orientation of your field that you think has helped you make those connections better? Uh, counterintuitively, uh, as someone who works in a, in a department of classics, uh, I can't, because of the, the undergraduate education I received, which was, which was great from my perspective, it did not give me training in the ancient languages. And what that meant is that the, my relationship to the classical past was filtered through a different set of sieves than other people. And as much as it produced a huge feeling of imposter syndrome for, you know, for close to two decades. Um, it also provided me the opportunity to not know questions that other people were trying to answer. It, it allowed me to say, it, to discover questions that were unique and interesting to me because I didn't have someone else's perspective in, in the way. And, and so as much as it felt like a failing of my education, I've come to believe that it was actually an opportunity uh, that, that I was given. It was a gift. Um, and as someone who's had so much success um, and experience in the field of archaeology and Greco-Roman history, and um, I was just curious if you had any tips for students who, who are also passionate or curious about that subject. Sure. Um, the, a couple of things. I mean, there's the, there are things that are true but are tropes. Right, and, and so I'll start with those. The first one is that um, if you are passionate about this subject, get out there, go find the place, go be part of the classical world. It's a, it's a privilege and it's an expensive privilege, right? So it's doesn't, I say this, but I also wanna recognize that it's a privilege and an expense that maybe not everyone's gonna be able to do. Um, I will tell those people that my grandmother paid for my first trip to Pompeii, and it was a mass. It was an important investment to her, uh, and I'll be forever grateful because it transformed my life. Um, I took out loans, uh, and I'm going to probably pay for those the rest of my life, as many people listening to this uh, may may understand. Um, but it was worth it, right? It it got me to the place I wanted to be, and it it showed me what the passion of my life was going to be. Now to the practical. If the classical world is of interest to you. Or, or let's say the past is of interest to you. Spend some time understanding how academic disciplines work. So if you're interested in the Maya or the Inca, you're gonna find yourself in an anthropology department. Spend some time thinking about what that would mean. Do you like archeological theory? Do you like 
cultural anthropology, because these are areas that you're going to also need to be aware of and to work in. If you want to be a classical archaeologist, if you like the Greeks or the Romans, you're going to need to learn Greek and Latin if you want to kind of reach the, you're, you're unlikely to be someone who's lucky as me uh, to come at this from a, a, a sideways approach. The linear approach is the easier one. So if you want to do those things, know that Greek and Latin are in your future. So are probably French and German um, because you'll need to read in secondary languages. You may find yourself you know, working on uh, other, other languages as well. So if you're interested in this path, spend time understanding that they are embedded in uh, structures and uh, uh, of, of practical realities, right? Structures of institutions that are departments, that are units, and that are uh, related to the path of being a student, a graduate student, a postdoctoral researcher, a visiting assistant professor, an assistant professor, and then so on, um, that, that you have a long path to go. Uh, go in, you know, with that that spark in your eye that the first part of what I said was go and look for the joy, but also, you know, keep your eye open to the, the realities that will be in front of you as well. Um, so the last question we ask all our guests is, um, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? Yeah, I wish I had some genius, unique answer, right? Um, success for me has been to kind of find a sense of, of calm with the things that I do and that make me happy, right? Um, like I, like I said, I don't want to be too cliche about it, but my success, I can say it that way. My success is that I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, I make a pot of coffee, and I'm excited to dive into the classical world. I'm excited that my life allows me to spend a huge amount of time imagining life in the past and the other parts of it to be invested in the past, whether that is on site at an archeological site, whether it is reading about it, whether it is in conversation with colleagues, or whether it is interacting with students and challenging them to, and, and them challenging me to come to that, that realization. Um, how to get there. It unfortunately is not a process that is a set of st steps. It is unfortunately not a process that is even um, kind of beyond the individual. Um, in many, many ways, defining success for yourself is becoming comfortable with the choices you make and, and, and why you've made them. Um, I, might, I might define it in the opposite way. Um, I often, I've often said, you know, what do I regret? And there are very few things I regret because there are very few things that I would change about my life. A regret means that I would change something that had happened in the past to change it to be a different way. And that doesn't mean there weren't mistakes, and that doesn't mean I'm not making them now, but it does mean that I like the direction my life has taken, and, and that's what success is for me, to, to live uh, with, with the joy and the recognition that, that their failings don't have to be regrets. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but thank you very much, Dr. Paler. And uh, to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.